I've worked with so many project people who see a project as a Gantt chart. And it's like, it's not a Gantt chart. It's a symphony. And it's, you know, in the case of what I'm working with in North Dakota right now, it's people's lives, it's a future, it's the growth of a community that's at stake. Welcome to the GovComs podcast, bringing you the latest insights and innovations from experts and thought leaders around the globe in government communication. Now, here is your host, David Pembroke. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to GovComs, the podcast that examines the practice of content communication in government and the public sector. My name's David Pembroke. Thanks for joining me. In a real treat, we at GovComs are hosting for the first time someone from Iceland. My guest today is Mike Klein, who is an internal and social communication consultant with an interest in developing the field of communication leadership through the hashtag WeLeadComs. Based in Iceland, the native Chicagoan Mike has worked in a broad range of editorial communication planning and research role. He is experienced in editorial planning, writing, qualitative research, and content for senior leaders. He's also involved in organizational change programs and internal communications. Mike completed his MBA at the London Business School and he's authored From Lincoln to LinkedIn, the 55-minute guide to social communication, which is a manual for mobilizing peer-to-peer communication. And also Changing the Terms is the name of both his business and his blog, And the blog, indeed, was recognised as one of Europe's top PR and communications blog by the Communication Director magazine. He joins me from his home in Reykjavik. Mike, welcome to GovComs. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. So listen, uh, Chicago to Reykjavik, we were having just a bit of a chat before we got started, but um, perhaps a potted history as to how it is that you found your way there to uh, living in Iceland. Well, I think the key, the key piece was when I went to business school in 96. I had go, been running political campaigns in the US for about 10 years previous. And having run political campaigns, I kind of went through the cycle of being young, enthusiastic, and then getting a little bit jaded and finding it a bit challenging to go from campaign to campaign, state to state, what have you. So in 96, I chose to go to to London Business School. And the the basic reason I did that was I wanted to find out how I could commercialize my communication skills. And by accident, I was in the Career Center one day and saw a brochure from a firm that specialized in something called internal communication. And I was reading this brochure and I said, wow, this is something that I could actually do. And so I approached the firm and I ended up working for them about a year and a half later. Um, They sponsored me for work permit in London. And that started my process towards getting British citizenship and ultimately staying um, on this side of the Atlantic. Um, Over that time, I've worked for a lot of you know, really fairly substantial enterprises, airlines, utility companies, um, oil companies. Um, I worked with Maersk, the big um, then shipping to oil company based in Denmark, um, lived in seven different countries and started my own business back in back in 2016. Um, also had a bit of government comms experience. I worked for a couple of years with the U.S. Department of Transportation on a fairly significant um 
systems implementation program that they were running. And I'm currently working with a client in the state of North Dakota, actually the states of North Dakota and Minnesota, that are building a regional um, flood protection program that's about $3 billion U.S. in value. Um, why am I in Iceland? I married a woman from Iceland. And um, after COVID, we decided Reykjavik, having not been locked down, is actually a pretty good place to be. And it is. It's a wonderful city. And um, I'm looking forward to being based here for the foreseeable future. Excellent. Well, listen, I'm, I'm interested in all of that. There's, there's so much in that from working remotely on major infrastructure projects, um, working, as you say, in major enterprises. Um, but perhaps maybe to start back, the transition from politics to commercialising those skills in a way that could add value to uh, public sector and private sector organisations. What what did you learn in that uh, MBA that helped you to capitalise on those skills? I think the big thing that I learned was vocabulary. Um, politics and business and government have distinct vocabularies, um, often with some similarities, but, you know, with, with words that have, you know, distinct meanings. Like, for example, the, the use of the term acquisition in, in government, or at least in the U.S. government. Acquisition in the world means to buy something. Acquisition in government means the process of getting something. And when you're talking to two people and you're talking about an acquisition and you are really like, you know, great issue was, was the, the term partnership um, where you had Accenture um, having the term partnership mean external partners and the organization having the term mean, you know, anybody who works with the team. And you're having a conversation for two hours about partnership and you haven't staked out the definition um, creates a pretty interesting and rather circular conversation. So it is interesting, isn't it, around this, the importance of, of language. So in your work and your consulting work that you, you do now, how, how much preparation do you do uh, before you get started to understand that the you're talking about the same things when you're initiating those conversations. There's not a lot of preparation you can do um, because you don't, you can't identify the issues until they come up to a large extent. I mean, there's a lot of preparation you can do for having successful engagements, making a difference, what have you. But when you're in an or, you know, you're in a conversation, you don't know what's going to come out of the other side's mouth. The best you could do is recognize when there's friction, when there's, um, something that's not working and then say, you know, just to be on the, the, the safe side here, are we talking about the same things? I'm talking about X. Is that what you mean by X? No, we mean X plus Z. Oh, okay. Well, let's talk about X plus Z then. Boom. You say you've shaved about 45 minutes off the conversation. Mm. So it's, it's really more about, you know, presence and awareness than it is about preparation. Yeah. But it also takes a bit of humility, doesn't it? To, to ask those what may appear to be simple questions to prevent talking past the person that you are seeking to engage with? Well, I mean, you have, you know, if you're coming in as a consultant or you're coming in as a new employee, um, you can't assume that you know everything that's going on. 
or that everything you're hearing is what you think you're hearing. And, you know, that's part of why I call my, my firm changing the terms because, you know, the, the word terms is loaded in a couple of ways. I mean, the, the slogan for lack of a better term is when you change the terms, you change the words. When you change, no, when you change the words, you change the terms. When you change the terms, you change the rules. And when you change the rules, you change the game. And so it's not just about vocabulary, but vocabulary is at the root of a surprising amount of discord and dysfunctionality in organizations. And part of it is because Sometimes people are trying to use terminology to hide things or to shave things or to um, or to make things less clear rather than more clear. And so, I mean, key thing is to be a champion for clarity. And not just in terms of champion for clarity in the end product of what you communicate, but also champion for clarity in the process of how you get there. So, Mike, it's, it can be a challenge, though, can't it, when you're, you're new, you're looking to make an impression um, and you're asking those searching questions when people are perhaps expecting that you're going to have the answers and you, and, and you need to keep moving. So what advice do you have to people to build that confidence that they can ask those questions in, in search of clarity? Well, I, I think it depends a bit on who you are. I mean, if you're coming in as a seasoned professional versus if you're coming in as a new graduate, um, I think there's a bit more tolerance for questions from new graduates. There's a bit more tolerance for advice from uh, more seasoned for seasoned pros. So sometimes it's just how you position it. But I think part of it too is, you know, when you go beyond an individual meeting and you start looking at the material that an organization produces, um, you know. Sometimes you just have to sense check it with people in the constituency um, and say, you know, does, does this make sense? You know, if, if you've read these hundred words, do you understand what this agency does? Um, but it's something you have to watch for. I mean, you know, in the end you get socialized to it and then you lose your, um, you know, you lose the clarity of your hearing to a certain extent. Um so it's something that actually you want to do when you get started. You want to get, you want to make sure you know what the terminology is before you start using it. Hmm. You've got wide experience across a range of important communication function, be it writing or research, creating content of other types, running uh, organizational change programs. What what are your your core principles in the way that you go about that work, apart from uh, ensuring that you establish clarity from the outset? Well, I, I think the key thing, and this ties into what I'm doing with We Lead Comms now, is, you know, as a communications person, particularly someone who's been brought in to support, you know, comms on an initiative, and that's a large part of what I've been doing from a change perspective, is that, your job isn't just simply to prepare communication for the initiative. Your job is to get that initiative through. And that's every bit as much your job as it is the, the head of the program. 
and it requires a degree of ownership, it requires commitment, and it requires looking at what you're doing from the standpoint of will this drive um, outcome success rather than just output success. I mean, it's very easy to come into a, a project and say, okay, here's my standard suite of tools and activities. Everybody likes it. No one's going to complain about it. And um, I'll be in a self, safe place once this is all up and running. Um, you know, and there are communications folk who do that. And it's fine. But, you know, there, there's more to be grasped from taking a leadership role, even if you're not seen as the leader of the program, to be seen as a leader of the program and to be acting in a manner consistent with helping to drive the success of the program. Um, and one of the great things that we as communications professionals bring to the table is the ability to lead without authority because we can frame things. We can envision things. We can share We can prepare visions for other people to see. You know, we can change the way that people inside the project look at the project, as well as changing the way people outside the, the project look at the project or at the organization, or at the um, commercial intention. We totally underrate our role as leaders in organizations and communities. And you bring that to a project, you bring that to a role, you bring that to an organization. And at the same time, bring the humility that, you know, even though you have that, that the power that comes from skills and attitudes, you don't have necessarily the, com- the authority that comes from the title. If you can bridge that gap, you can not only be quite successful, you could also have a, a, a dramatic and measurable impact. Mm. It's, a, it's a fascinating point that you raise because I, I tend to agree with you that the that stealth mode that you sort of refer to um, for communications people to play that cross-functional role where you're joining up all of the different pieces of the puzzle and it's not just that traditional communications output but it's more that uh, team building, um, clarifying, as you mentioned before. I think it's a space that we as communications professionals don't step into enough um, but when we do, we, as you say, if, uh, if you execute with authority and with humility, um, your effectiveness can go uh, through the roof. Do you do you see that that role or that opportunity is increasing as a result of changes in technology and perhaps the repositioning of the communication function inside organisations much closer to the CEO and much closer to the board? I think that role has always been there since words and pictures existed. Um, but I think technology and um you know, particularly the urgency and the accelerated speed at which things happen um, are making that accessible to more people more quickly. Um, you know, the process for doing stuff is so much faster now than it was even 10 years ago that if you take the initiative, if you take the idea of communication leadership seriously, um, you know, it's it's much more accessible and it's much more accessible at different levels of organizations. You can be a communications leader and be an intern. You just have to be taking the initiative somewhere 
to do something that wouldn't have otherwise been done that moves the action forward. You can also be a communication leader as, you know, somebody who's not a professional, uh, not a communications professional, but who recognizes the power that words, pictures, and stories have to create movement above and beyond the boxes and lines of an org chart or the, the multicolored lines of a Gantt chart. You know, I've worked with so many project people who see a project as a Gantt chart. And it's like, it's not a Gantt chart. You know, it's something, you know, like in the it's case- a symphony. It's a symphony. <laughs> and it's, you know, in the case of what I'm working with in North Dakota right now, it's permanent flood protection for a community that is the potential of getting annihilated every 10 years. You know, it's not a Gantt chart. It's, you know, it's people, it's people's lives. It's a future- it's the growth of a community that's at stake. We'll come back to that in a moment because I do want to explore this ability to be able to influence from, uh, you know, North North Dakota to, to, to Reykjavik and how you actually organise that. But you did mention uh, We Lead Comms. Yes. Tell us a little bit more about We Lead Comms and, and what you're hoping to achieve. Well, We Lead Comms came from an idea that a lot of how we do organizing and recognition in the communications field could be completely inverted. So in the communications field, we've had associations that charge dues for membership. We've had awards programs that involve long convoluted applications um, and juries and a lot of people you know, inspecting a lot of stuff. And there's nothing wrong with any of that. One of the things that I've really realized, and this comes in large part with having had many of the world's communications associations endorse a conference that we're organizing for the 23rd of, of September. And we're also planning on doing one that's more Australia and um, U.S. West Coast friendly in late October that we'll announce shortly. Um but WheelieComs really does two things at the moment. One is there's a daily recognition program. And so I kicked it off by recognizing 100 individuals in the communications field who give back to the profession and or make a difference to their profession or their community in some way beyond what you would expect from their normal job description. And so I've got people all over the world, from Ghana to Australia to Iceland, um, to Dubai, to Canada, who are communications professionals who are doing great stuff. And there's only one, there's no juries, you know, it's just been me, but people will start to make their own nomination shortly. Um, there's one criteria. Are you giving back? Are you making a contribution that involves more than just simply doing your job? And you could find an awful lot of comms people, a lot of communications professionals who are doing that. And it's created such an extremely interesting and rich group of people. And there's, there's starting to be a bit of a community formed among the people who've, who've, who've been recognized so far. And the idea, it, it, it comes down to a hashtag. There's no organization called We Lead Comms. There's a hashtag, hashtag We Lead Comms. And then I own the um, LinkedIn page where everything gets posted. And I also own a Twitter account. That's it. 
But the other thing is the way that we do conferences, I also thought was a bit stiff. And so we're creating the We Lead Cons Open Conference on the Future of Communications Leadership, Communication Leadership. And it's an open conference. So basically, you register, you show up. Um, we give a very quick opening statement about what we see as communication leadership and the opportunity that it that it presents for us as individuals and for the industry. And then people will go off and do a couple of breakout sessions. There'll be, you know, breakouts, lots like one for every 10 participants or something like that. And then everybody will come back and talk about what they talked about. And so it's a half day event and um, there's no preset speaker now, you know, speakers line up. And it's amazing when you have no preset speaker alignment, how easy it is to get people to endorse what you're doing. Because what we're doing is we're, you know, we're saying we're going to have an open conference. We're going to talk about the future of our industry. Um, There's nobody who's giving us permission to do this. We're just doing it. And you're welcome to join us. And, you know, it costs a little bit of money compared to, you know, what normal communications conferences cost. So that's the 23rd of September. 23rd of September, and then there's going to be one on 29th of October that's going to be the more Pacific uh, friendly um, time zone. And so okay. if you want to if you want to find out, just, just follow the We Lead Comms hashtag, and there will be plenty of information about it coming out. Excellent. And we will uh, promote that in the show notes for people to get involved. Yeah, and I'll give, you your, I'll give those- you your own registration code. Okay, wonderful. Thank you very much. Now, in terms of the conversations that you expect to take place, and looking at the the hashtag We Lead Comms, what do you? What are the top three things people do you believe will will want to talk about at the conference? Well, I think there will probably end up being three tracks of conversation. One will be how can we do how can we do work better because that's what you hear at most communications conferences. And people are welcome to speak and present on that. And literally, you choose your speaker slot on the day. There's no preset speakers. The second is going to be about um, the state of the industry. You know, what could we do as leaders to energize our associations and communities in the industry? And then third is how can we project ourselves as leaders more effectively? I'd say those are kind of the three buckets that would – that would emerge naturally from those conversations. Okay. Now, in terms then of how we can do work better, obviously the world has been turned upside down and we are all now working uh, in different ways than we did before. And you, in fact, are working on a project in North America from Iceland, uh, a major infrastructure project. Tell tell us the story of, of that project and how how you work remotely to deliver value for your clients in North America from Iceland. I think in a lot of ways, it's easier for me to deliver value from here than from there because, you know, it's a, (laughs) you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a Fargo, North Dakota and Moorhead, Minnesota, the twin cities on the, on the opposite sides of a river that flows North. And when you're on a river that flows North in a cold part of the world, um, the southern areas often thaw before the northern areas, and the water flows north and it backs, you know, it flows into the ice, backs up, 
and every 10 years it, it threatens to annihilate the city. And it's a, it's a, you know, it's a university. It, there's a couple of universities there. So, I mean, there are people coming in and out, but it's a really deep, rich community with a lot of stories and a lot of personalities and a lot of, you know, really charismatic people. And the personality dynamics can be really overwhelming in terms of how people interact with each other. And one of the things that I bring to the table is because I'm not directly involved with most of these personalities, I can say, okay, is that a personality issue or is it a political dynamic issue or is it a process issue? And instead of trying to find a personality-based solution, which usually doesn't work because you're not going to change anybody's personality, um, figuring out, okay, what role are they playing? Are they being the champion of their constituency? Are they being the righteous avenger? Are they being this, that, or the other thing? And then you can neutralize some of the things that are either producing challenging behaviors or you can encourage the things that are producing um, productive behaviors. And so there's, there's, this, there's a leadership dynamic that I'm involved with precisely because I'm on the outside. But the other side of it is that, you know, when it comes to writing, when it comes to, um, you know, understanding larger political issues, you know, I've got, you know, I'm one of the few people around who's done high intensity internal communications and high intensity political communications. And so they needed somebody who could support them on, you know, on basically helping them get the funding and helping them position themselves and get the right team in place so that they could get the funding to build this thing. You know, getting, you know, North Dakota is a famously conservative state, particularly for the region of the country that it's in. Uh, for them to invest the kind of money that they are in this project is not a small thing. Um, but at the same time, um, this project is going to go from having, you know, a team of 10 to having, you know, a much larger group of people building, managing, driving the actual construction. And you don't have to be on the ground. You just have, you know, I mean, you can't have the whole team be remote. But my role actually fits quite nicely in a, from a remote perspective. And also it's because I've helped shape the role. So in terms then of working remotely, and clearly you have experience in working remotely, not just in this circumstance, but obviously you've had opportunities in the past, what's your best advice to people about how to be effective when they work remotely? Well, I think the key thing is to understand the organisation that you're working with and understand the extent to which it is influenceable from a, from a remote perspective. I mean, I'm doing some research at the moment, kind of an ongoing research project, looking at what makes communication in remote first organizations different from communications in um, office-based organizations. Uh, because my contention is that the whole conversation about hybrid is not really that real, that in the end there's going to be, you know, remote first and office-based organizations. I would say in the public sector, it will be overwhelmingly office-based for the foreseeable future. 
uh, just because the nature of public employment and the level of trust that tends to exist in public organizations isn't all that high. Um, but the key thing is obviously given that trust in public organizations isn't all that high. I'm talking about not only public trust in the organizations, but also the trust levels within the organizations, neither of which are particularly high. Um, obviously, the key thing is to establish yourself as trusted, uh, you know, to where possible over deliver without overdoing it. Um, so that you're seen as reliable and credible and, you know, somebody who, um, you know, can be part of the team without having to be physically overseen. Hmm. But it really sort of goes back to the first point, doesn't it, about being clear about your role, about being clear with important stakeholders about what it is that you are going to deliver and then being able uh, to deliver exactly. to, to that expectation. But, but, but clarity sits at the heart of all of it, doesn't it? Yeah, and, and, and part of it is that, you know, and, and I wouldn't say that I've been a natural to remote working. I mean, I had a remote assignment at the beginning of the, um, of the pandemic, which, you know, lasted about six months. I was surprised it lasted that long. Um, where at the end I was so far behind where the information flow was on the team and I didn't even know what questions to ask. You know, it's very easy to lose track of the plot if you're not, if everybody else is there and you're not there. Um, right. I think one thing is you've got to, you've got to over communicate with the team. You've got to have somebody who's got the patience to tell you or at least point you to that which is significant. And part of it has to do with how involved you're expected to be in stuff that you're not expert on. I mean, one of the good things about the project that I'm currently working on is that I'm not involved with the technical side at all. Um, I've been involved with the political and with the, you know, the public communication piece, which is stuff I'm comfortable on. The previous project, you know, it was with a, you know, trying to promote a project management system in a very technical organization. And so there was the system itself, there was the process of getting the system delivered, and then there was the whole community of largely technical people that was responsible for it. And in the end, um, and also they were quite keen to get my hours down. And in the end, it just, there was no bandwidth for really being able to keep on track of, you know, and I think, you know, in retrospect, when they got my hours down below a certain point, I should have walked from the project because it wasn't possible to, you know, to work on it effectively, effectively. Um, mm. But, you know, the key thing is you've got to stay up to speed with what's going on and preferably have somebody on site who is working with you to do that. Somebody who's got a, you know, a vested interest in your success. Because mm. that goes to the point around serendipitous uh, engagements when you're in the office, you're either overhearing conversations or you're invited into a meeting or you, you know, you're standing in the coffee line next to somebody or 
there are those opportunities to build those relationships and build those trust where you're starting to see the different threads that might come together that help you to come up with, you know, the some good ideas around how to bring things together. How do you achieve that remotely or is it impossible to achieve that remotely when you're looking at that sort of free-ranging role of the communication professional that in stealth mode who's just looking at the business outcomes and trying to stitch it all together? Is it, is it impossible to achieve that role when you are working remotely? Um, it's kind of that, – that question is kind of like can you develop – reliable and interesting and unpredictable forms of informal communication with people in and around your project when you're not physically sitting there. And the answer is yes. And they look different. Um, Yeah. One of the things that's worth doing is to monitor your key contacts on social media, see what they're talking about on social media, because social media is where these informal and spontaneous conversations take place in real life, Be- you know, particularly between people and organizations. Um, a lot of people, particularly a lot of very senior people, often only publish on LinkedIn about stuff they're interested in. Um, I mean, about stuff that they're doing professionally. But occasionally you'll find somebody who you know, who is communicating about other stuff. And then you can, you know, you can engage them on those platforms about the other stuff and then develop a parallel relationship with them in social media from what you, from what you do in the office. I mean, that's one way to do it. Another way to do it is, you know, to, to take advantage of what being outside the office offers you, which is that, you know, you can do research on what's going on in the broader world particularly broader world of what's going on in the field that you're working in. I mean, I'm looking right now at what's going on in infrastructure and particularly water infrastructure and realizing that there's some messaging that we're not picking up because we're only talking to each other. So, you know, it's, I'd say that the serendipity of the office is overrated. Um, a lot of people talking about the serendipity of the office are talking because, you know, they're desperate to get, you know, get people back in their cubicles. Um, and there's not a lot of conversation that takes place when you're in a cubicle, by the way. Um, <laughs> you know, the, 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 somebody said, the, we have to do it for the office culture and then this picture of this dark cubicle. And, you know, when I worked in the U.S. federal government, I mean, it was all dark cubicles. You know, the, the, the culture of where I was was basically, you know, but, you know, both people had their commuter train schedules pinned to their walls. That was, that was the culture. <laughs> yeah. So I. Actually, it's an interesting point you raise. Um, very, very fortunately in Australia, we've uh, pretty much avoided, or certainly in the part of Australia I live, up until the last few weeks, we've avoided lockdown, but. I'm now two and a half weeks into lockdown and I think I've got more work done in the last two and a half weeks than I probably had in the previous three months because I don't get interrupted all the time. So uh, 
I'm far more effective, I find, at home than, than I am in the office for that reason alone. Right. And serendipitous encounters go both ways. Um, some of them are enlightening and exciting. Other, uh, others are just, you know, stuff that, you know, have you ever heard of Google? Could you use it, please? <laughs> exactly. Well, listen, Mike, before I let you go and get on with your with your day and um, just a reminder that we lead comms, hashtag we lead comms. There's the uh, the World Conference. It's on, on the, the Open 23rd. Conference. It's not the World Conference. It's the Open Conference. It's very okay, different from the world. Open. It's very different from a World Conference. World Conference is great. I've been to I've been to five IABC World Conferences. I recommend it to anybody. But Open Conference is very different, and I think it's going to be really exciting. Yeah. And then there's going to be a, a, a later open conference, um, much more sympathetic to those of us in the Asia Pacific, uh, around the 29th of October. Correct. So make sure you uh, dial into those, everybody, and, yes. and get involved. And open conference, as it says, uh, you can participate, you can contribute, and you can do uh, and uh, do as much or as little as you like and listen to um, speakers such as Mike talk about the future uh, of the profession. So, Mike, if I was to take you as a final question five years into the future around the profession of communications, could you just describe what you what you can see happening more of and what you can see happening less of? I think we will hear less about seats at the table. Um, and this is a particular bugbear of mine. I mean, it's like um, you, you, you look at the literature, you look at the articles, you look at the conference um, menus, and there's the invariable talk about everything will be great once we have a seat at the table or, wow, COVID gave us a seat at the table. You know what? We don't need a seat at the table. We have a hand on the wheel already. <laughs> And I think over the next five years, people will finally start to realize that and start acting like leaders and start recognizing their leadership roles rather than seeking permission to lead. And if we do that in the next five years, then the, the, the five years that follow will be completely unrecognizable. Well, Mike Klein, thank you so much for giving up some of your most valuable asset, your time and your attention to the GovComs audience today. My Certainly pleasure. Many insights there of, of value to them, and I know that they'll take away a few of your uh, insights and integrate them in their daily work and, and be a little bit more effective and, and be a bit more clearer perhaps and humble in the way that they go about their influencing uh, in their organisations because, as you say, there is a uh, – I love that idea of don't worry about having a seat at the table because you've already got one hand on the steering wheel. Understand it, appreciate it, and use that uh, that power for good exactly. uh, in your organisation. So um, thank you so much for your time today. And to you, the audience, thank you for coming back once again to listen to GovComs. Wonderful to have a guest uh, from Reykjavik via Chicago, Mike Klein. Uh, and again, uh, just to let you know about that hashtag, 
we lead comms and getting involved in those open conferences. They should be a whole lot of fun. So we'll be back at the same time in two weeks with our next edition of the GovComs podcast. But for the moment, ladies and gentlemen, it's bye for now. You've been listening to the GovComs podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate and subscribe to stay up to date with our latest episodes.